Dan said, my name's Paul. It is a joy to have you with us this evening. Uh, I'm one of the site pastors here at Cardiff Central, um, and it's just great to have you with us. We are in uh, a series at the moment looking at the book of Nehemiah. So if you're new uh, to church this evening or you have missed the last few weeks, we'd really encourage you to go back and listen to them because tonight is the final one of the series. Just before I dive in, though, um, I would love to let you guys know about something that's really cool. Some of, well, I guess a lot of you will know Naomi Lane. She um, is, is a student in our community. Being sh- yes, there's a few whoops for her. We love her. She um, she plays keys in the worship band. She's on the kids' team. So uh, she's just been uh, an absolute legend and part of our community. But as part of her um, kind of final graduation work, she wrote a whole blooming musical on the book of Nehemiah, which is pretty cool. And a bunch of us went to watch it, and it was amazing. So um, firstly, just wanted to kind of acknowledge how cool it is to write a musical. I mean, I wrote like a pretty short essay for my dissertation, and she did a whole musical. Uh, so there's there that side of things. But also, just to say to you guys, if you um, wanted to catch that, we there is a video recording of it, and we're going to share it this week. So, you know, it's great studying the Bible, and it is amazing sometimes when we get to step back and, and engage with the story in a different way. So there's about an hour's worth of a musical that just goes through the story of Nehemiah that if you want to check out this week, we would love you to do so. It's going to be on our Facebook page. So check that out. Now... We, as I said, this is the final talk in the Nehemiah series. And you know what? I, I've closed out series before, and it's like I'd normally love it. Um, but today's a slightly big challenge, because if you were here last week, you'd have heard James give it a really great talk, actually. On um, Yeah, no, not that I'm surprised. <laughs> no, he is amazing. We are very, very gr- blessed to have him. It's gone downhill to begin with. Uh, no, so he did a great talk, on, and he looks at integrity and leadership, uni- unity amongst the believers, fighting injustice. And he talked out of Nehemiah 5, and it was great. Nehemiah has 13 chapters, though. And we spent six weeks looking at the first five of them, and we're going to spend one week looking at the last eight. So it's a big challenge. And you know what? I've wrestled with how to do this this week. been spending time with the Lord, being like, is there you know, one specific part you want me to focus in on, or is it an, an overview? And you know what? What I've landed on is these three things. I first want to zoom out from Nehemiah and look at the backdrop in which it's set in Scripture. And then I want to zoom back in as the second thing and almost just give us a, like a, an overview of the final part of the story and just go through it and be like, what is actually going on here in the final books of this book? And then the third thing is I want to look at where Nehemiah ultimately points us. So without further ado, let's dive in. So we're going to zoom out here. I want us to see the backdrop of hope, of expectation, and also of disappointment that is in place as we get to the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, see, it's not an isolated story. It's one part of the larger narrative of Scripture that details God's relationship with his people. And the danger is when we zoom into a book, we can get into the nitty-gritty of it. And, and you know what? We can learn loads from it, and it's really important. But what can sometimes happen is that we miss the bigger picture. We miss what's going on. Um, I was reminded this morning as I was thinking about it, it was a bit like two years ago, I went with a couple of friends to see the Star Wars movie, the, I think it was The Last Jedi. Now, I am not a big Star Wars fan. I have, like, hand on, like, I'm just going to be honest, I haven't seen them all. I couldn't even, I, know, I couldn't even tell you them all. Some of you are like, what's even Star Wars? With the young, no, it's, but 
I haven't seen them all, but we're there with these guys. We, um, we watch the movie, we come out afterwards, and there's some of them, and they're just like, oh my word, did you hear when that guy said this thing? He was meaning about this thing in the third film that was actually the first film, and you're not even allowed to watch the one that's the first film because it's rubbish. And I was there, and I was just like, yeah, cool, great, that was, yeah, nice. And then, they, so they're going off on this, and they're talking about all this detail, and then they turn to me, and they're like, oh, hey, like, Paul, what did you think? And I was like, yeah, yeah, man, stuff blew up. It was good. <laughs> You know, and, and I enjoyed the film. I could follow it. I could engage with it. And I enjoyed it. But there was layer upon layer upon layer of things that I missed of the bigger picture of what was going on. Now, as that is the case, I want to just give a quick overview of the Old Testament up until this point when we get to the book of Nehemiah. Don't worry, it is super quick. <laughs> so, God creates humanity. He breathes life into them. He provides to them with a beautiful place to live. He gives them food. And he says to them, I want to be in relationship with you. I love you. I want to work with you. And I want you to trust in me. And humanity, like a stroppy teenager, says No. I'm all right, thanks. I'm going to do it my own way. I'll see you later. And God honors their decision, and he, he lets them leave the garden. And then what happens is there's this kind of back and forth between humanity and God, where God is like, guys, I still really love you. That offer's still on the table. I'd love to be in relationship with you. And humanity have moments where they're like, yeah, actually, no, we would love that. Yeah, that'd be great. And then we're like, actually, no, you know what? I'd, I'd rather do it my own way. And what God does is God details this covenant relationship between them. He says, you know what, let's, let's make it super clear. Let's lay out how things will work between us so that we can be in relationship and I can bless you. And the laws that we read in, in the beginning of the Old Testament, those are the details of the requirements of that covenant. And so what's on offer here is this intimate relationship between God and his creation and some requirements about how they should live. And what we find is time and time again, the Israelite people just can't faithfully commit to that covenant. You know, this covenant relationship is much like a marriage. I'm married to this amazing lady called Claire. You you guys don't really get to see her because she comes to the morning service. Uh, But she is wonderful. And we, when we got married, we made a covenant commitment to each other. And what's on offer in our marriage is the potential of deep intimacy. But for that to be the case, there are requirements on the way that we need to live, the way that we need to interact together. And if one of us were to break those uh, requirements, it would have consequences on on the intimacy of our relationship. And it would have potential as well to even ruin the whole relationship. And when we read through the Old Testament, we find it's back and forth between the people of God breaking the requirements of the covenant, turning their back on him, being unfaithful to him, and him just going, I'm going to show you outrageous mercy. I still want you to come back to me. Come back to me. And so what happens as we read through the Old Testament, from Moses into the prophets, what we find is there's this deep hope that maybe one day God would transform his people's hearts so they would be able to faithfully be in relationship with him. It's there time and time again, through all of the disappointment that happens when his people turn away, there's this expectation and and deep longing that God, one day you are going to transform the people's hearts. And it's really important for us to have that at the forefront of our mind as we read the book of Nehemiah. Because as we go through the Old Testament and as we go through Nehemiah, we see this pattern of hope that maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the moment that the people of God's hearts are transformed and they live in faithful relationship with him. And then the disappointment when it turns out that it's not. 
So let's have that in our mind, the hope and expectation as we dive back into the story of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is a story so much more, sorry, about so much more than just rebuilding the city walls. So let's just remind ourselves of what's happened so far, especially if you've not been here for the last few weeks. As a result of one of the many rejections that God's people made to him, the people of God end up in exile. So they're scattered around. And then some of them were allowed back to Jerusalem, their city, to rebuild it and also rebuild their way of life. Now, Nehemiah, he is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He, is, he lives nowhere near Jerusalem. And God breaks his heart for the situation. He approaches the king and ultimately gets the king's blessing to go back and to rebuild the city walls in, his, uh, in Jerusalem. Now, he goes back. He faces opposition from surrounding nations, but also from uh, the, his own people. But eventually, they begin working on the wall together. And that's where we've got to so far. They're working on the wall. And then we get to the end of chapter 6, and the wall is rebuilt. And it's like, yes, this is a good moment. Nehemiah's initial mission is accomplished. And then we get to chapter 7, and what happens in chapter 7 is there's a long list of names that I have no chance of pronouncing that of, of all of the people who can now come back to Jerusalem because their city's safe. And then we get to chapter 8, and chapter 8 is a beautiful moment. So just before Nehemiah, well, I say just before, a long time before Nehemiah came back, another man, Ezra, went back to Jerusalem to try and spark back this love of God and a recommitment to his, to his ways in the people of Jerusalem. And ultimately, again, that failed. But he's still there in Jerusalem. And the people now in Jerusalem, having had the city walls built, they say to Ezra, hey, you know what? We would love for you to teach us from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so what happens at the start of chapter 8 is the people gather together in the square and Ezra reads the law of Moses over them. And this is a big moment because for some of these people who have been in exile, some of them would have never heard the Torah taught. And others of them, they would have heard it, but it had been a long time ago. And so there's this amazing moment of them being drawn back into the truth that God has spoken over them. What's amazing is the physical restoration of the city walls has led to a spiritual awakening in the people. So Ezra reads the Torah to them. Uh, and just as a quick aside, what I found fascinating as I read through this is that it's not only that Ezra reads out scripture to them, but actually people were appointed to help these people understand it. So if you read Nehemiah 8, verse 7 and 8, it says this, the Levites, and then there's a list of people, instructed the people in the law, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to attempt them, uh, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. I don't know about you, that gives me hope. Because sometimes I'll open scripture and I'll read it. And I'll have not a scooby-doo what's going on. I was like, I, I don't quite see how I can apply this to myself. And I have no idea about the original context. It's like, Lord, why is this even in there? I get confused. And I'm sure that some of us in the room will feel like that as well. And I want to encourage you, if that is the case, that's okay. 
But to get people around you, to find people who can help you understand scriptures, to find resources that can help you understand scripture. And one that I would love to recommend to you is called The Bible Project. And I've used it for this talk, found it super helpful, used it a number of times. It's by, founded by this guy called Tim Mackey. He's a, you know when they're just really smart people. And he really knows his stuff. And he's created a bunch of free YouTube videos that are short or engaging, that just go through and explain different parts of scripture, explain different things about different books, and really help you um, kind of understand it. So would really encourage you if you're here and you're like actually I do find it quite hard to read the Bible just get on YouTube and have a look at that and I'm sure you'll find it helpful but anyway Ezra is reading to them and the Levites are explaining what's going on and you would think that this is a moment like the wall has just been rebuilt and it's like yes this amazing moment and now we're hearing about God's kind of laws and his relationship with us and his desire for us and you would think this would be a joyous moment But what actually happens is the Jews begin to weep and mourn. We read this in Nehemiah 8, verse 9 and 10. So it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy some choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. A moment that in Nehemiah's mind was joyous and to be celebrated was being met with weeping. Now, it doesn't say why, but as I've been thinking about it, I wonder if it's because as they heard how things were intended to be, God's initial plan, and then the way that he's constantly shown the mercy, I wonder if they began to realize how far they had turned away, how badly they had messed up. And actually they're there and they're like, whoa. It's just beginning to break their hearts. Nehemiah, though, even though they're weeping, he is determined to celebrate. So he's just like, guys, Wipe away those tears. Let's have a feast. We're going to celebrate this amazing day of the Lord. So they do. And within this tension of the celebration, but also the mourning and the weeping, the Israelites are led to repentance and they confess their sins. And we find this in chapter 9. And chapter 9 is a beautiful summary of what has happened in the story of the Old Testament so far. It was amazing reading it, just being like, wow, this is just in one chapter, a brilliant encapsulation of what has gone on between God and his people. It's the back and forth that I was talking about at the start of God rescuing his people, showing them mercy, inviting them back into relationship, and then them turning away. And then him coming back and be like, I'm going to show you mercy again. I want to read a few verses from chapter 9. And as we do that, I want you to remember the hope and the expectation that would have been palpable to Nehemiah and Ezra. Because remember, they would have been carrying this hope that one day the people of God would turn back to him. One day, God would transform their hearts and they'd be able to live in faithful relationships to them. And now, suddenly, in their midst, it seems to be happening. I'm going to read um, from the message translation, which, you know, I find a really helpful translation to understand scripture. Sometimes it just puts it in really helpful phrases. I'm going to read just from the start, the first few verses, and then going to jump to the end. So it says this. Then, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel gathered for a fast, wearing burlap and faces smudged with dirt as signs of repentance. The Israelites broke off all relations with foreigners, stood up and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their parents. 
While they stood there in their places, they read from the book of the revelation of God, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they confess and worship their God. And then what happens in the next few verses is we get a picture of some of their worship and then beginning to detail this back and forth between their people and God. And we get to this in verse 26. This is just after another time that God has shown his people outrageous mercy. It says this, But then they mutinied, they rebelled against you, threw out your laws and killed your prophets, the very prophets who tried to get them back on your side. And then things went from bad to worse. You turned them over to their enemies who made life rough for them. But when they called out for help in their troubles, you listened from heaven. And in keeping with your bottomless compassion, you gave them saviors. Saviors, he saved them from the cruel abuse of their enemies. But as soon as they had it easy again, they were right back at it, more evil. So you turned away and left them again to their fate, to the enemies who came right back. They cried out to you again, and in your in great compassion you heard and helped them again. This went on over and over and over. And then we get to verse 38, and it's the summation of it. Oh, and they say, because of all this, we are drawing up a binding pledge, a sealed document signed by our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Ultimately, what they're saying is, God, we see all that you have done for us. That time and time again, you have shown us mercy and grace and rescued us when we didn't deserve it. And time and time again, we have rejected you and turned away from you. And we are sorry. We recommit to this relationship with you. What a moment. And then we get chapter 10 through 12. And what happens here is the, the details of the binding pledge, this covenant relationship is detailed. It's a list then of more names that we can't pronounce of people who signed it. And then there's this massive celebration. And if you're Nehemiah, this is the moment. Rebuilding the city walls, like that was cool. But this is what the prophets have been hoping for. The, the people's hearts being transformed back into God. And you know what? I reckon Nehemiah probably got a little bit, you know, I mean, if, I, if it was me, I'd have probably been like, hey, Ezra. I mean, hey. How's, hey, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, people are just repenting. No big, no big deal. Hey, so what you wanted? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Do you know what I mean? It's this amazing moment. And as we're reading through it, at this point, we should be feeling great. We should be feeling all of this hope and expectation. It's like, yes, we've got to this moment. It's happening. But then we get to chapter 13. And it's just a huge anticlimax. It's not the ending that we were expecting. So what happens here? Nehemiah, it's all going great. Nehemiah returns uh, to the king of Persia. He doesn't say for how long, but it's long enough for things to go wrong, which in the people of God's history is not actually very long at all, unfortunately. But he, go, he then goes back to Jerusalem, and he gets there, and he finds that the people have gone back on the covenant they made. They have turned away from God again. And Nehemiah flips out. You know, so... We learned last week about integrity and leadership, and there's some great leadership lessons you can learn from Nehemiah. There's quite a lot of people will teach on leadership from Nehemiah. None of them teach from chapter 13. Because what happens in verse 25 of chapter 13 is this. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. What? That's bonkers. 
But you can understand, right? Because for Nehemiah, the, the walls, that, that, that's great. But the people turning back to God, it's like, this is what it's all about. And then he's, he's like, guys, this is amazing. He's probably gone back to the king of Persia. He's like, is this the best thing in the world? They all love God again. And then he comes back and he's just like, how fickle. What? You've turned away again. Have you not seen everything that God has done for you? The anger that he felt because of the crushing realization that this indeed was not to be the moment he had hoped it would be. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I imagine it was a little bit like last summer. As an England football fan, there have been years upon years and hope upon hope that we would once again win the World Cup. And we had our very own Nehemiah, a waistcoated man by the name of Gareth Southgate. And he gave us this hope. And suddenly, game after game, and it was like, ooh, the tension's building, the expectation. And across, well, maybe not this nation, but across England and on Five Live, there was this palpable sense of excitement. It's like maybe football is coming home. And then Croatia knocked us out. We'd even won a penalty shootout, which like never happens. So this like big moment, and then Croatia knock us out. And the next day, I remember like listening to the radio, and there's just feeling of deflation. I mean, like not so much here in Wales. You know, I never knew that so many Croatians lived in Wales. But there was this feeling of deflation as once again, this was not to be our moment. We would have to wait. But you know what? Maybe not too long, because the women are kicking butt right now. And we're like two games away from the Lionesses raising the trophy, which we will take. So go, go them. But you know what? This crushing realization would have hit Nehemiah. And we can understand why he was so angry. But as I've been reading Nehemiah, and I took some time earlier in the week just to read through it all in one go and kind of absorb myself in the story. I'll be honest, I've been wondering how could this genuinely, like this seemingly genuine repentance not lead to transformation that lasts. It was like, okay, they've had this profound encounter with the Lord. They've really repented, but it just hasn't lasted. And then as I've been thinking about that, it's like, okay, well, why is actually this book in the Bible? You know what? The, the rebuilding of the walls is, is great. It's important. It's not, like, it's not that big a deal in some senses. And in the grand story of the Bible, it's, it's not the most important thing. You know, the story about God's relationship with his people. This is just another example of it going wrong. So why would you include it? And one reason is because the anticlimax of Nehemiah is supposed to stir something within us for the longing, sorry, of the longing for the transformation we need and the realization that we can't do it alone. Throughout the Old Testament, what emerges is the reality that the transformation will come through a person. When you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's just these prophecies that actually God's saving grace will happen through a person. God's Messiah, who will rescue and save God's people, who will bring about the heart transformation that we need and allow God's people to live in faithful relationship with him. See, the anticlimax of Nehemiah is supposed to point us to Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, which is the, you know, one of the four stories about Jesus' life in the New Testament, we read that just after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was walking along with two of his followers who didn't recognize him. And it says this in Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's an easy verse to read over quickly. But what that's talking about is that he's going through you right from Genesis 
through all the way to Malachi being like, hey, let me tell you how this all points to me. And so I love, and I'm sure that part of that, he'd have been talking about Nehemiah and about when the city walls were rebuilt. And he'd be like, hey, you know what? That pointed to me. You know the reason they weren't able to sustain that repentance? They weren't able to fulfill the law requirements of the covenant relationship was because it was too much for them. And ultimately, they needed a new way of doing things. They needed a new covenant. And this is what Jesus offers us. In Hebrews, another letter in the New Testament, in Hebrews 9 verse 15, we read this. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the good news. That we can enter freely into relationship with God. That we are not bound and judged by the old covenant, by the laws of the old covenant. But we have a new covenant and that new covenant is Jesus' blood shed for us on Calvary. It's the song we sang as part of worship. I cast my mind upon Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. His death fulfills the requirements of the law so that we can live in freedom, that we can receive the promised eternal inheritance both in this life and in the life to come. That you and I, no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, no matter how much we have messed up, no matter how far we have turned from God, that because of his great mercy towards us, we can enter into relationship freely with him. The God who loves us, the God who is a good, good father. That's the good news. It's not a nice idea. And you know what? Like Most of us probably haven't been trying to live by Old Testament law and failing. And so sometimes as we read scripture, we can kind of miss the, the context of, of the culture and understand like, what's going on. But ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we're broken. We know that we need a savior. And if you don't, then without being too harsh, you're just lying to yourself. Because we all have that brokenness, all have that need of a heart transformation. And the good news is that it's available through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, it, and the gospel is either true or it's not true. There's, there's no like, middle ground. And so we have a choice to either believe it and, and give everything for it. Or to reject it and say, you know what, I don't think it's true, I'm, I'm going to ignore it. But if it's true, it changes everything. And so if you're here this evening, and, you know, and if you've never heard the gospel before, then there's an amazing opportunity for you to respond to it tonight. If you wanted to say, you know, actually, I'd quite like to follow Jesus. I don't really know everything it entails, but I believe it's true and I want to put my trust in him. Then there is a space for that tonight and we would love for you to do that. But you know what, I know many of us in the room will already have made that decision. And we'll be like, yeah, we know the gospel, we know Jesus. And maybe actually, as, I was, as we were praying before, I just had this sense of actually like the complacency that can so often happen with us. It's like, yeah, we know Jesus died, it's a nice idea. It's not a nice idea. It is revolutionary. And you know what, um, I... Say, so, uh, 10 days ago, I found out a really good friend of mine who had seen Into My Life Loads is only five years older than me, died. Super suddenly, like, diagnosed with cancer and 12 days later died. And you know what? Like, 
it's, you know, it is heartbreaking and I have wept and that is so much of a place for that. But what is amazing is also in the grief is this hope because she loved Jesus so much. And so there's just this deep assurance that she is with the one her soul adores. But you know what has happened is over this time, as I've been processing with the Lord about it, it's just birthed this urgency in me. This like, is not a nice idea, right? Not a nice idea. It's, it's not just a, a nice thing we say that, oh, I, I trampled death, where is your sting? It's a nice song lyric. It's not a nice song lyric. It's the truth. And it's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, we have to give everything for it. Because Jesus is the name above all names. If it's true, he's the name above all names, which means we should lay absolutely everything down for it. Because it's not about our glory. It's not about us. If, it, if, if, if it's true, it's about him. And so I want us as a generation, like we have such potential to change this world for Jesus. And we just get complacent. I just don't want us to be complacent. Like, what's the point in being complacent with this? We have friends who, whose lives will change because of this good news. Because the amazing thing is, this is good news. Yes, it is good news for the life to come. And you know, we don't talk about that too much. But when your friend dies at 33, you, th- you think about actually how important it is that there is hope in the life to come. You really, you really do. The amazing thing is though, there is hope and there is good news for this life right now. That Jesus offers peace. He offers freedom in this life right now. And so we have friends whose lives will completely change because of this good news. And I want us to be a congregation. I want us to be a church who will sell out for the gospel. Who won't be complacent. On Friday night, we had a worship night. Some of you will have been there, and um, Dan, Dan and I were leading at it, and he sent me this song earlier in the day, and it was by YWAM Kona. And, you know, I was like, as he sent it to me, I was like, oh, probably, like, would we sing it? I don't know if people will know it. But I listened, I was like, we've got to sing it. And we ended up just spending so long in just singing this song, and w- because it was all about his heart. And one of the lines was, I will preach the gospel, die and be forgotten as long as you get the glory. And you know what? That is what I want our hearts cry to be. Because the gospel is worth everything. Jesus is worth everything. And you know what? As special as we all are, we're not that important. It's not about us. It's about his glory. And I want us to be people who are just utterly compelled by this good news. Because it is true. It is true. And if it's true, then we've got to give everything to follow it. And rant. Why don't we guys, why don't we stand?